Good morning. We start out by dismissing our kingdom kids. You can head out with Miss Melissa in the back there. As for the rest of you, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. One of my favorite movies of all time is a rather dramatic picture known as Nacho Libre. If any of you have ever seen the movie, you'll understand why I love it so much. It's just full of so much great philosophical content. The, the, the movie has um, Jack Black portraying a Christian monk who wants to become a luchador, a wrestler. And, and so he teams up with uh, a homeless man that uh, takes the, the luchador name El Skeleto, the skeleton. And the two of them are having an interchange where Nacho Libre is confounded that this man won't get baptized. And he responds and he says to Nacho Libre, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Now, what's funny about that is anybody who knows those topics, both of them, that's an odd thing to say. But I've been in the ministry for almost 20 years now. And I have heard a number of people espouse exactly that position. I don't believe in God. I believe in science. How many of you went to the Truth Project this past week? Any you guys there? Okay. Del Tackett said something in the Truth Project session this past week that was important. He said, no matter where you go in this life, no matter what direction you head in, God has spoken to that area. God has said something about that. Do you believe that that is the case? I do. Regarding the sciences, do Christians have any reason to fear the sciences? If you believe, as I believe, that all truth is God's truth, and that means this, the more that the, science, the sciences discover, the more they investigate, the more we should turn up about God's existence, the more we should know God. And it's not just based on some futuristic hope, it's based on the knowledge that the vast majority of the scientific founders were, in fact, Christians. Let me just read a few names for you really quickly. Galileo and Copernicus. Oh, those are those guys who were against the church, right? It was science versus religion. No, it wasn't. Galileo and Copernicus were both Christians. They were debating with the church about how to interpret the early chapters of Genesis and what the Bible means when it talks about the sun, or the, the sun rising or setting. That was the discussion. People like Kepler, or Blaise Pascal, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, Faraday, or Charles Babbage, the inventor of the computer sciences, Louis Agassiz, uh, people like Gregor Mendel, Louis Pasteur, Kelvin, Lister, James Clerk Maxwell, William Ramsey, Max Planck, uh, Francis Collins, all of these people are Christian believers. If those names sound familiar to you, it's probably because you heard a lot of those names used as units of measure in the sciences. This reads like a who's who list of the scientific founders. Now, I say all that for this reason. Science is good. If we, I, I have encountered Christians throughout my life and throughout ministry that have said things like, basically like what the atheist says there. I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Or I don't believe in science, I believe in God. I was addressing a group of about 100, 150 teenagers at a CIY conference some years back. And I used to do these Q&A sessions where they would, they would let students ask me whatever, and then I would try to answer what they'd asked. And one student raised his hands and he says, what do you do with somebody who believes in science instead of believing in God? I said, let's back up. These things are not at odds. We serve the God of all creation, which means all the sciences, whatever is true, belongs to him. Now, we're going to dig into the sciences this week. Have you had your coffee this morning? All right. Next two weeks, we're going to be digging into the sciences pretty heavily. Um, we're going to do uh, just a quick overview of where we will be going today. 
Um, my first point this morning is going to be focusing on what non-theists, uh, atheists, agnostics, believe concerning the origin of the cosmos. Our second point, we're going to be dealing with what Christians say specifically about the origin of the cosmos. And then our last point is going to be kind of a so what. You know, what do we do with this? Okay, that being said, before we go in that direction, let's see how you did with your memory verse this week. Did I hear a groan? All right. Ready? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give. Oh, I, for, the, for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence or gentleness and respect. Okay, very good. Before we begin talking about God today, I want to, well, we're just going to be talking about God today. Before we focus in on the creation of the cosmos, I first want to just talk about the kind of God we are defending. So if you've got your Bibles, have Acts chapter 17 opened up. Have you ever been engaged in a conversation with somebody about God? And as you're talking about God, you find that you guys have serious discrepancies about who that God is and what that God is like. Make sure you're talking about the same God when you have a conversation with a non-believer. Here's what I mean. When I talk about God, I am not talking about a space wizard. I'm not talking about Santa Claus in the sky. I'm not talking about Zeus. The God that most people don't believe in, you also don't believe in. I also don't believe in. So what is my God like? Acts chapter 17, something interesting happens. Paul is... Uh, he's preaching in a region that is predominantly Greek, and he goes to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, a place where you can debate with other philosophers and scholars. The most educated people in the world at that time debated on Mars Hill. Paul was invited to make a defense of his faith. And so he started with what they believed, and he said, I see that you're religious in many ways, and I see even that you have this statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you about this God that you do not know. And then Paul begins to describe to non-believers, people who don't know God, what our God is like. Let me distinguish our God from the version of God you may have heard of. Let's look at what he says. Verse 24. The God who created the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. What's Paul saying? He's saying our God is not spatially confined. He's not powerful in one place and not powerful in another. Our God is not like your God's. When he's speaking to a Greek audience here, remember this Greek audience held that deities had power in certain places. Your God was powerful in your region, but go beyond your borders and he's not God there anymore. They don't worship him. Paul says our God is the God over all peoples and places. He is not spatially restricted in the ways that your gods are. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything because it is he who gives to all people life and breath and all things. God does not need you. He doesn't. For the Greek mindset, the Roman mindset was, if you wanted your God to be powerful, you had to give that God honor and attention. And if you didn't, that God became more weak. Paul says, our God is not like that. It doesn't matter how much you worship him or how much you ignore him. He is God regardless. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands and territories. This is the God of all peoples everywhere. 
He is the God. Doesn't matter what nation you're in. Verse 27. This was so that they would seek if perhaps they might grasp for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here's what Paul's saying. This God appointed your place and time. As he's speaking to the Areopagus, the interpretation would be, my God put you here and now and brought you to this place for this moment so that we could talk about this topic. And that's true of us today as well. This is the God who forged this universe and put you here at this place and time so we would be in this room right now. And notice he says he's not far from each of us. It's almost like Paul saying, look, I know that what I'm telling you about God makes him seem infinitely removed from who we are. But that God is also close to you. And then he describes how close. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist. That is, in him we actually have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are his children. So then, being God's children, we should not think that the divine nature, the deity, is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination or skills of a man. In him we live and move and have our being. Some people think of God as being part of this universe. That has never been the Christian depiction of God. Our God exists beyond, infinitely beyond, and outside of the paradigms and parameters of this universe. As Paul describes it here, it is a more accurate theological statement to say that the universe exists within God than to say that God exists as a subset of the universe. That is the God we serve. Now, it's important to have that mindset as we head out the gate here because we're going to talk about creation, and I want you to understand the God we're talking about, the God we're defending as believers. Let's first turn and look at what the secular world says about the question, where did it all come from? Oh, before we do that, let's pray. Our Lord and God, our Master, our Deliverer, God, it, your your wonderful creation. It has just been amazing already today to just feel this cool weather and to be walking outside and considering your works. God, as we gather now and we're considering your work in the larger sense and thinking about what you have made, Lord, help our minds to be open. I pray that we would be able to grasp realities deeper maybe than our natural selves are capable of. I pray that supernaturally you will equip us to understand and that you will help us to apply our minds to these things that we might glorify you with the worship of our minds. We love you, God. We give you this time, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to minister to us in all these things. Amen. Our first week we got together, we talked about what is truth, and we talked about the nature of truth, and that God is a God of truth. It is specified throughout the Scriptures. This is very important to God. Last week when we got together, we talked about the question, why something rather than nothing at all? Why does a universe exist if we're bookended in sort of this nothingness? Now we're not going to deal with the why question so much as we're going to deal with the how question. How does a universe come into being? So let's consider the secular answers first of all. Where did it all come from? If you were to pose this to your friends who are not believers, how would they respond? Many would probably say something like evolution. Some of them would say Big Bang if they're a bit more educated in the, in the nature of things. But both of these answers are actually going to be incorrect at the very basis let me explain why. Evolution is actually not a description of absolute origin. It doesn't tell us anything about where something comes from. 
Evolution is a description of life transmutation, how one life form becomes another. And so it purports to tell us how life becomes something else. That's what evolution teaches. All right? So it has, has nothing to do with real origins. If you're looking for the origin of life, the topic you're looking for is abiogenesis. But what about Big Bang cosmology? I mean, surely that tells us how we got here. That is actually incorrect. Big Bang cosmology does not tell us how we got here. Big Bang cosmology is not a mechanism. Let me say that again. Big Bang cosmology is not a mechanism. What is Big Bang cosmology not? A mechanism, okay. It is a description. There is a difference between a mechanism and a description. A mechanism tells us how something comes about. A description just tells us what it looks like when something comes about. Big Bang cosmology is a description of what first events look like, okay? This is what it looks like when a universe emerges. Let me demonstrate it for you. Nothing, everything. That is what Big, Cosmo Big Bang cosmology says. Nothing, everything. There it is, pretty impressive, right? Think of it this way. Um, imagine you had a video recording of a cat flying through the sky yowling, just, you know, you know, through the sky. All right, now, where did that cat come from? You see that it's flying through the sky, but you don't know why it's flying through the sky. You don't know how it's flying through the sky. So was it picked up by a tornado? Uh, was it the case that it inherited superpowers, and now it's just flying? Or, or was it a catapult? And all the dads in the room said it was definitely, definitely a catapult, because dad jokes. Big Bang cosmology is like that. It's telling us what it looks like when something is moving and in, in motion, but it does not describe what caused that motion. Um, and here's the deal. You, you might encounter some non-Christians who say, well, yeah, we don't know now. Now we don't understand the mechanism, but eventually science will get us to the mechanism. That is incorrect. At its very basis, that's incorrect. Do you know why? Because all physical laws in the universe break down in the first nanoseconds of the universe's existence. In other words, space, time, matter, and energy cannot be measured beyond those first nanoseconds. You know what science does? It measures matter and energy and space and time. In other words, it's basically like your tools just got taken away. They won't even apply at that first portion of the cosmos. Science has no way to get at the first nanoseconds of the cosmos. It cannot happen. So here's what we've got. We've got nothing, whoop, everything, and now we have to explain how that happened, but you cannot actually get to that moment using science. Guess who the biggest objectors to Big Bang cosmology were when it first emerged on the scene? Atheists. Do you know why? For the whole course of the human experience, Christians, those laughable, oddball Christians, believed the universe came into being, but the enlightened people knew that the universe was always here, and suddenly that narrative got flipped on its head. This universe definitely came into being. Well, how did that come to be the case? We're going to do Big Bang 101. Now, some of you here in the room might be uh, going, hey, I objected to this from the beginning. I'm a young Earth creationist. I don't believe in the Big Bang cosmology. Perfectly fine. You don't have to. Uh, but every non-Christian you encounter probably does. Agreed? Okay, so what I'm going to do here today is I'm going to teach you how to argue for the truth of God using Big Bang cosmology. So if you're a young earth creationist, you would say, look, I don't even believe the earth was forged this way, but here's the deal. Your best science indicates that there must be a God. Let me show you how. Make sense? Big Bang 101. 
Albert Einstein had developed his theory of general relativity, but there was a problem. In his theory of general relativity, he noticed that the gravitational attraction of matter posed a big issue for the cosmos in general. It seemed that because matter was drawn to itself, that if this universe were infinitely old, the universe would have already imploded by now. There would be a problem. Matter cannot be spread if that's the case. And so Einstein, like most scientists of his day, believing that the universe was just eternal, went, I've got to fix this. And so he did. He added a number that he called the cosmological constant. That number was a fudged number. He created a number to make it look like there was an expansive force that doesn't really exist. Later on, after Einstein was proven wrong, he would say this was the biggest mistake of his entire career. Now, that being said, other scientists were paying attention to what was going on, and a scientist by the name of Edwin Hubble, you guys have heard of the Hubble Space Telescope, named after this guy? Edwin Hubble, he was doing research in his observatory, and he was looking out into the night sky, and he noticed something about all the stars throughout the whole course of the heavens. All of them were shifting toward the red in the light spectrum. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but this red shift is really important. Have you ever heard a train go past you? and it, you experience something called the Doppler effect. Doppler effect is when like, you hear trains like and it kind of the tone goes down as it's moving away. Okay, that same thing happens with light. Because the waves are spread a bit more, light shifts toward the red end of the spectrum. So here's what this means. Everywhere you look in the night sky, every star, every, every galaxy that you see out there is moving away from us at immense speeds. It's all getting further and further apart. So think of it this way. If I were to have a balloon up here on stage and I were to glue buttons all over the outside of the balloon, let those buttons be stars and galaxies, and I start inflating the balloon, they all get further and further away from each other. See how that works? But here's the implication. If I let the air out of the balloon and we go back in time, what happened? It all comes back together. And so the implication, the unnerving implication for the atheists and agnostics of the day was our universe came into being, and it looks like our universe came into being out of nothing. How can such a thing happen? Well, Edwin Hubble uh, invited Einstein to his observatory. This is the actual picture of Einstein looking through Hubble's telescope. That's Hubble on the right there with his cool pipe in his hand. And he's watching as Einstein observes this. Einstein came out of this observatory, and he was met by a barrage of, um, of media types, and they're holding microphones in his face. And he said, I now see the necessity of a beginning. I now see the necessity of a beginning. Sorry, that was my best Albert Einstein. That's all I got for you today, folks. I now see the necessity of a beginning. He flipped his, his mind on the issue. The story of all astrophysics for the last 50 years, 50 plus years, has been one astrophysicist after the next trying their best to overturn Big Bang cosmology and failing. To what degree? How successful have they been? Well, see this book here on the right? This is a recent production. Can you read what that book says? The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook or How to Beat the Big Bang. It is a book written by astrophysicists or an astrophysicist to tell astrophysicists, here's what we've got to do, because they have failed over and over again to overturn the absolute beginning of the cosmos. Where did, uh, where did Big Bang cosmology come from? This is interesting. Do you know who came up with this idea? A Catholic priest 
by the name of Georges Lemaitre. He was also a mathematician and astrophysicist, brilliant scholar. And he said, as I'm looking at the universe, it makes sense that this universe just whoop into being. And that's what it looks like. And so he faced the ridicule of many of his peers in his day because people went, that's absurd. The idea that something could come from nothing. The term Big Bang was actually coined by a man named Frederick Hoyle, this guy right here on the right. He's an atheist. He was ridiculing Big Bang cosmology. He, he said, what, you believe that the universe just popped into being from nothing, some Big Bang, and suddenly everything was there? He was ridiculing the idea. Why? Because for an atheist, it's a very uncomfortable idea. And that's the name that stuck. That's the name that you and I use when we talk about this today. All right, brief window, brief history of astrophysics over the last 50 years. I want you to know the different positions that are out there. Number one was steady state cosmology. This universe exists in a steady state. This is what Einstein believed. This is what most of the scientists of his day believed. Nobody now believes in steady state cosmology. Nobody believes the universe is just at a stasis. I don't know a single astrophysicist who holds to this anymore. So that one's gone. Next model I want to look at very quickly is the quantum gravity model of the universe. This is Stephen Hawking's baby. You guys heard of Stephen Hawking, right? He's popular. He's been, he'd been on The Simpsons before. So maybe you've seen him there. Uh, Stephen Hawking was the, uh, the wheelchair-bound scientist who um, proposed a lot of theories. got kind of popular in a lot of circles. His quantum gravity model of the universe said this. It said, okay, so there's this great quantum sea of energy, and the universe emerged from that. Well, a lot of scientists in the know began examining him, going, hey, you're just redescribing the Big Bang. You're not actually describing anything new. And Hawking acknowledged, yeah, I mean, it is an absolute beginning of a universe. I, yeah, everybody believes in the Big Bang. Here's what he said. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning in the Big Bang. I'm just describing it differently. Same thing, though, okay? Then we have chaotic inflationary universes, bubble universes, and spinoff universes. All of these models were made to try to make the universe look eternal, but here's how they go about it. There are undetectable, unknowable, unsearchable universe-generating machines out there. So yes, our universe emerged and came into being, but there's something out there that is causing universes to emerge. Now, why would they think that would be a machine? The reason is because of the philosophical predisposition, because if you're, if you're a scientist who's an atheist, a machine is still under your control. Uh, by the way, the term undetectable and unknowable should be a giveaway here. Are those scientific terms? No, he may as well have said that, you know, the, the universe was created by uh, purple polka-dotted magical geese. I mean, it, it has the same quantitative effect. It's, it's, it's saying that the universe emerged from something we'll never understand or never know. But the deal is, if it's a machine, if it's a mechanism, then it's still sort of under my auspices as a scientist. But if it's personal agency, then suddenly it has control and dominion over me. So that's more appealing for many people. But it's still, it's acknowledged universally by everybody, even the people, the proponents of these views, that these views have failed. I'll tell you why in a few minutes. Oscillating universe model, the last model I want to just briefly consider. Uh, if you went to school in the 70s, you probably heard the oscillating model of the universe in your, in your high school science classes. Oscillating model is the idea that we have this, we got this explosion, but then we have gravity that forces a contraction, everything comes back together, and then it bounces back out and comes together. 
Uh, the Hindus love this because this describes their universe. And for a while in the 70s, everybody was like, yeah, this is it. But now we know this can't possibly be real. This can't possibly have occurred this way for a number of reasons. Number one, um, there is a, there's a mathematical quantity that we have for uh, the gravitational force, the mass force, to force a collapse. It's called Friedman's critical value. And take all the matter and energy in the whole universe, even dark matter and dark energy and hypothetical energy that's out there, we have less than half of Friedman's critical value. So it's never going to implode. We also know that there are now forces that are acting to keep the universe moving apart. So it's never, ever, ever going to stop by any conventional means. All right, that said, if you're just like, why are we talking about this? The whole point of this is to say, astrophysics has worked very hard to come up with something that can explain how the universe gets here. And the only answer so far is it comes into being uncaused out of nothing. We don't know how, we just know it looks like this and everything. All right, there are problems with an infinite universe beyond the ones, the criticisms I've leveled so far. Let me just trot out a few of those for you real quick. Number one, the infinite is nowhere to be found in material reality. Can you point to an infinite thing in the world? Nope. <laughs> no, only one of you. All the rest of you are like, hmm, let me, let me think about it. Uh, no, there, there are no infinites in the physical, physical world. None whatsoever. Mathematician David Hilbert said this, it neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role uh, that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. Okay, so nowhere to be found in material reality. If you're objecting, you're going, but wait a minute, God's infinite. Is God a subset of material reality? No. Okay. Secondly, mathematically dealing with the infinite leads to self-contradiction. Who feels like doing some math problems? That's what you wanted from church this morning. You're like, I want to go to church and do some math. Let's try some. Here we go. What is an infinite series of odd numbers minus an infinite series of natural numbers? Oh, man, they're all up there already. All right. Infinite series of odd numbers minus an infinite series of natural numbers is zero. Okay, so infinity minus infinity is zero. Try this one. Take all natural numbers, then subtract all numbers greater than three. And you get three. So infinity minus infinity is zero, and infinity minus infinity is three. That is known as a contradiction. That means that the role of infinity is simply that of an idea. It is not a reality. We also logically encounter problems. So mathematically, it doesn't work. We don't find it in the natural world, but logically, we've got issues. We are expected to believe that an infinite series of events led to our current state. Think about that for just a moment. An infinite series of events led to us being in the room here right now. That would mean this. The universe had to transgress an infinite series of things for us to get here. Now, if you don't understand why that's a problem, let me try to illustrate it. Imagine you had to stop at an infinite series of stop signs on your way to church this morning. Would you have ever made it to church? No. And yet here you are. You have arrived. You have transgressed an infinite series of events to get here. The universe went through an infinite series of events to get here. That doesn't make sense. It does not work. Or imagine this. You had to jump an infinite series of hurdles in order to get your first cup of coffee this morning. Would you have had your first cup of coffee ever? No, because it doesn't work that way. That, by the way, that sounds like a level of hell, doesn't it? No! All right, 
So logically, we have problems. Mathematically, we have problems. Contemporary astrophysics completely destroys the notion. Um, Frederick Hoyle, again, he's an atheist. He pointed out that Big Bang cosmology literally requires that our universe came from nothing, and this is a big problem. In 2003, something happened that rocked the astrophysical community. You probably have not heard of it. 2003, Al, uh, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin proved that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be past eternal. It can have existed eternally in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. And this applies also to the multiverse. Now their proof was so solid and so powerful that the whole of the astrophysical community basically bowed to them and went, that is true. Which leaves us with this, an absolute beginning. Alexander Vilenkin describing this said this, he said, scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. But there's the rub. A non-theistic Big Bang is creation ex nihilo. It's nothing than everything. It is ultimately absurd. Anthony Kenny said a proponent of the Big Bang, if he is an atheist, must believe the universe came from nothing and by nothing. David Hume, who's like the loving grandfather or uncle of all atheist scholars who are out there. David Hume, before... Um, Big Bang Cosmology said this. He said, but allow me to tell you I never proposed so absurd a proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. I mean, that would be foolish. And yet that's exactly what atheists are left saying right now. So here's an objection. Somebody listening to you or some atheist you're talking to might say something like this. But since the Big Bang is supposedly the beginning of all matter and energy of space and time, it really doesn't require an explanation, does it? Can't we just say it is, and that's all that matters? An honest atheist named Kai Nielsen, brilliant philosopher, he said this, suppose you hear a sudden loud bang, and you ask me, what made that bang? And I reply, nothing, it just happened. Would you find my reply intelligible? No you'd find it quite unintelligible. And yet that is exactly what many atheists are doing right now. It just happened, it's just here. We shouldn't have to talk about it. Let's enter the Christian paradigm now. So from the atheist paradigm, here's what I want you to know. All the evidence from the, the natural world that is pointing to any origin says this, the universe emerged uncaused and out of nothing. Here's what the Christian paradigm says and has always said. Now, how does a Christian answer the question? Where does it all come from? There are three primary responses in Christian circles, and then there are a slew of subsets and subdivisions of those responses. Here are the responses. Uh, the universe is old, and it, Big Bang cosmology is just describing what God did. The universe is young and has the appearance of age, and the Big Bang cosmology is just something that looks like what happened. It was created sort of with the appearance of age. And then there are theistic evolutionists that say the universe is old and God created via evolution. Tons of subsets within that paradigm. I will say this. I know Christians from every one of those positions who are dynamite, awesome, God-fearing people who are doing the work of the Lord. So I don't try to ostracize anybody based on that position. Let me, and it's not within my purview right now to even discuss these things except to just mention them to you. If you're interested in a book on this, I just picked up this one two days ago. I had its predecessor, uh, Four Views on Creation. The fourth view is intelligent design, by the way. But uh, pick it up, read the other views, don't criticize any view until you know what the arguments are for the other view. Does that make sense? Otherwise, we just sound ignorant if we're, we're talking to other people. Okay, that said, let's talk about what all Christians agree on. 
Every one of these positions holds this. Firstly, Christian theism teaches an absolute beginning. We always have. The absolute beginning of the material universe was brought about by God. All Christians hold this to be the case. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, if you've got your Bibles with you, underline in the beginning God because that distinguishes us from most every other worldview on the planet. In the beginning, God. All monotheists hold that God preceded matter, energy, space, and time. The other religious ideologies out there do not hold that. The gods are just part of the created order. Okay, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 tells us a bit more about the Christian position on this. John 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being, which has come into being. So the Christian position is that God precedes matter and time. Now, precedes is actually the wrong word, because precedes suggests sequence. In order to create the cosmos, God has to exist outside of the sequence, or in a realm we would call eternal, non-time, outside of the parameters of time. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared uh, by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which were visible. In other words, God did not use stuff to build this cosmos. He did not make it out of pre-existing stuff. God has the power to create ex nihilo, from nothing, God can make something completely new. Can you do that? Try to think of anything new you could make. All you're doing is rearranging stuff. God has the capacity to make things out of the nothingness, from nothing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is uh, before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you've got your Bibles open to that passage, if you underline thrones and dominions, uh, Michael Heiser says the only time you ever see the words thrones and dominions used are descriptions of the divine council of heavenly beings. In other words, God did not just make everything here, but God made every celestial thing, every creature that is unseen to you, all things visible and invisible. And did you notice that last phrase at the end there? He is before all things. Paul had bad grammar. Why would he say that? Shouldn't it be he was before all things? He's, he's ascribing divine eternality to Jesus. Jesus is not in a position where he was before all things. Jesus is before all things. He is omnipresent through all time and history, all at once and beyond. Let's get to the cosmological argument then. What on earth are we doing with all this? There is a way to begin discussing this with non-believers that will powerfully illustrate to them that there is a God or that their best understanding of science illustrates that there is a God. Okay, the cosmological argument for the existence of God. We're going to present the Kalam's cosmological argument. There are actually several others that are out there. So here's the deductive argument. A deductive argument is an argument where if the premises are true, the first statements are true, the conclusion is guaranteed to be true. Right? So here's the argument. Premise number one. 
Whatever began to exist must have a cause. Everybody agree? Sure. Your non-Christian friends would agree. Everything that began to exist must have a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Best data we've got says exactly that. The universe began to exist. Okay, we're all in agreement. Conclusion, therefore, the universe must have a cause. Now, you might be hearing that and going, so? I mean, what does that matter? So what? The universe had a beginning. What does that have to do with God? Well, here's where it gets sticky, and here's why non-theists really disdain the idea of Big Bang cosmology. You ready? Some of the things that we can say cannot cause a universe. So this is a job description we're looking for. Ready? Here, here's what cannot cause the universe. It cannot be caused by energy or matter. So it can't be made out of stuff of the universe. Why? Because that's what we're trying to explain. It cannot be subject to time or time base. It must be outside of time, existing in the realm eternal. Make sense? It cannot be spatially located or oriented. So it's got to be bigger than simple location. It's got to supersede the idea of location. It cannot be the universe because the universe can't bring itself into being. The ultimate bootstrapping event. Could you be your own father or mother? No, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't work that way. Okay, we can further determine what this cause must be. It must be immensely powerful. How powerful? Well, powerful enough to bring a universe into being. Can you do that? Neither can I. It also must be non-mechanistic. Now, this is philosophically proven. Non-mechanistic or personal. So imagine I am a standing up machine, right? I'm a machine that stands up. That's what I do. It's a machine that stands. Got it? Now, I was sitting in a chair. If I'd been around for an eternal time, what should I be doing? Standing. Because I'm a machine that stands. I'm a mechanism, and the mechanism would have to eventually do what it's supposed to do. I would stand. The only way for a, an eternal cause to produce a finite effect in time is for it to be a personal agency. A person, not a mechanism. Okay, so it also has to be a personal agency. We might further infer some probabilistic features. This thing is probably uncaused and probably non-contingent. It means it doesn't depend on anything else for its existence. This cause would also seem to operate with great intelligence, almost like a mind. And you'll see that a bit next week as we talk about complexity in the universe. So let me just run through the job description real quickly. You tell me if you know anybody who fits this paradigm or anything that fits this paradigm. You ready? An entity that is non-material. Only two things we know of fit that category. Abstract objects and spiritual things. An abstract object is like the number three. Can the number three make the universe? No. So we're left with a spiritual thing, an immaterial spiritual thing. An entity that is not time, that is literally eternal. An entity that is not spatially located or restricted, it would be omnipresent. An entity that is immensely powerful, exercising power over all the created world, greater than the whole of this cosmos, ultimate power, maybe omnipotent, all-powerful. It would be uncaused, self-existing, not dependent. It has to be something that is personal, a personal agency, not a mechanism. It has to be an entity which appears, or at least it is, seems to be an entity that appears to function with great intelligence. Do you know anybody who fits that job description? And again, this is why thinking atheists really don't like this idea or this prospect. Okay, so what do we do with this? My word, that's a lot of information just to tell somebody that God exists. What's the purpose of all of this? What should I do with this? 
Number one, rejoice, worship. The response of Christians and, and the Jews, the people of God throughout history, when they took in the wonder of creation, when they saw that God was creator, their response was to worship and give honor to God. Revelation chapter 4, 10 and 11, we see that this is going to even be happening in the eternal realm. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. That is a right and righteous response to the created world. I see what you have done. You are magnificent. When Nehemiah finished building the wall in 444, he offered this praise to God. And in the midst of the praise, here's what he said. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens and the heaven of heavens with all of their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. Note the natural world. If you had the response where this week, I don't know if you did this, where you walked outside and you just went, oh, thank you, Lord. Just the beauty of the natural world, the wonder of it all. That is a right and righteous response. By the way, if you're not doing that, there's something wrong with your soul. Man. We should feel affirmed in our belief. The Lord has not left himself without witness in the world. Not just the scriptures, but witness in the natural world. God is telling us that his fingerprint is on this. I am here behind it all. More than that, uh, with our confidence boosted, we need to do this. Get back to work. Get back to work. This information is not just trivia. Uh, we're not just tossing this out so that we can go, oh, I'm right. Yes. I thought I was right all along. The point of knowing this is to help people who don't know it. You encounter non-believers every day. And if you know any non-believers, here's what I can tell you with utmost certainty about them. Most of them probably ascribe to some version of Big Bang cosmology. They think they're being scientific. They think you're an idiot, and they don't understand all the truths behind this. And it's not that your understanding is going to free them, but think of human beings this way. It's almost like people build up walls between themselves and the knowledge of God. They build up lies and half-truths and artificial ideas about the way the world works. Your job is not to save them with your knowledge. Your job is to step into their lives and help them knock down those walls so they can have a clear view of the God who is right before them. That is the purpose of Christian apologetics. We are to take captive every thought. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 4 and 5. This is going to be our, uh, our memorization passage for next month. So if you want to get an early jump on it, I know you're all chomping the bit, like, give me more to memorize. Listen to this passage. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying, listen what we're destroying, speculations and every lofty thing or every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God. We're knocking down ideas that stand between people and God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're doing that in our own lives, and we're trying to do that in the lives of others. So, be the fun person at the party who talks to people and goes, hey, how do you think it all got here? Start the con I, know, I know you all love those people, don't you? Be those people. Start asking the deep questions in this life. Allow people to begin conversing on this issue because we have great answers for these things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would all have the right mindset when it comes to uh, Christian apologetics in general, that we would be willing 
to maybe spend a little time studying and understanding to help liberate those around us who don't know you. God, we love you, and we thank you so much for loving us, even in the depths of our sin. We praise you, and we want to worship you with our minds. It's in your name we pray.